problem that we're trying to navigate now is that a lot of people are simply modeling the economic practices of our, our yesteryear, right, that have been centered on extraction and diminished value and return for community. And so even if you are, for example, a person of color who is you know, getting into housing redevelopment and you buy up a block of houses, right, and you try to flip all these properties to make a lot of money, like, yeah, that could be, you know, fruitful for you individually, but you could also be still displacing an entire row of homes or block of houses that could have then gone to somebody and maintained their affordable housing. Welcome to another edition of Be The Change Georgia, where we amplify the voices of the inspiring business leaders surrounding the B Corp and social impact movements across the South East to help you learn how to build your legacy at the intersection of people, planet, purpose, and profit. Today, Nathan had the pleasure of sitting down with Sterling Johnson, the director for the Partnership for Southern Equities Just Opportunity Portfolio. Sterling oversees administration of PSE's economic justice programs, including re-granting, small business support and workforce development initiatives. He also provides subject matter expertise as a facilitator and consultant. Prior to joining PSE, he spent nearly four years with Atlanta-based law firm Griffin & Strong, PC, as Director of Public Policy, providing consulting and project management services to over 40 state and local governments nonprofit organizations, and private businesses nationwide. In part one of this interview, you'll hear Sterling discuss things he wishes everyone understood about the work of the Partnership for Southern Equity, how his lived experiences fuel his personal purpose, and challenges he encountered getting into the field of public policy and community economic development. Okay, let's jump right into this episode with Sterling Johnson. Over to you, Nathan. Sterling, welcome to Be The Change Georgia. How are you? I'm doing good, Nathan. How are you doing this morning? I am living the dream as always. It's good to have you on. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, so I'm excited to uh, get right into it. Yeah, for sure. I'm ready for you. And like I said, had a good weekend. Uh, I know you big dogs fan. See the cap there. Go dogs always. Uh, so ready to get to it. It's a fun. It's uh, I'm glad this is a Georgia regional show or a Georgia show and not a southeastern regional <laughs> show. People probably stop listening to me by this point. Right. So um, I wanted to get right into some of the questions I have for you. I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, you and I have known each other for a while um, and, and just kind of interested to have you, well, really just unpack one of our conversations and share it with the world. So um, what do you wish everyone understood about the work you do with the Partnership for Southern Equity? You know, it, it's a lot that goes into that conversation. I think, you know, this has really kind of been amplified recently with a lot of what's been in the news um, in, in different contexts. And we don't necessarily have to get into all of that today. And of course, with election season right around the corner and, and a lot of that, I wish people understood about that. There's this need for a growing social utility, right, that we're all really in this work together. Um, that the work that we do around racial equity is not at the detriment of any other groups, right? That there's this notion of kind of the limited slice of the pie or the scarcity mentality that oftentimes comes into these conversations. And that really you know, this conversation is not about exclusion at any point or, you know, restricting one particular group from having things in preference for any other groups. It's about how do we create the, the atmosphere, right, where everyone has the tools that they need to be able to, to collectively uh, not only participate in our economy, but thrive in our economy as well. And, and we know that looking at the history of how our economy has grown, 
that we've trended towards extraction. And so these conversations are necessary in bringing balance to our, our ecosystem and to our economy and ultimately positioning everyone to be able to, to have everything that they need to live a quality uh, life. You know, and so uh, I think a lot of times these conversations get caught up in the racial makeup and they hear and some people in some groups will hear that and say, well, what they're doing is discrimination in another form of way. And that's not what this work is about at all. Right. It's about that. The reality that we're all in this together. Right. But that there have been some historical context that need to be addressed and set so that everybody can be able to have and, and create the life that they want and that they deserve. Yeah, I love that too. I mean, there's, I, in hindsight, I probably should have named this podcast the Abundance Mindset. So I feel like I have so many guests on, and, and obviously it's the nature of the B Corp ethos and conscious capitalism and all those kind of premises of, of this is an abundance mindset world that we need to live in, and we need to pivot away from that scarcity mindset where if somebody else gets something, it means you can't have it. Right. And I, right. I what is it you think? And, what do you think? Like, I see it a lot in Atlanta and I know there's still, there's still opportunities for us to practice it a little bit more, but what do you think it is about Atlanta and Georgia in general, as far as, is that abundance mindset being so prevalent? You know, I, um, I think a lot of it has to do with Atlanta being the birthplace of Dr. King, right. And, and the civil rights movement and that, generation right is an epicenter of a movement for like i said social utility something greater than one individual self right it, it wasn't about how do i come into this movement to get everything that i need out of it for me it was about how do we create a collectivism right that we're all in this together right and we're all facing this um, obstructive barrier together right being racism and that we're all seeking to overcome this and so Atlanta, you know, being not only the epicenter of, uh, of the civil rights movement, but of course, just the, the prevalence of our African-American communities, um, the legacy right, that was seeded then and that has only grown over time. Um, we know about how that, you know, even if it seems as though kind of an afterthought in the conversation, right, the, the history of black economics. And, you know, we can go back through history and through learning. Right. And we see a lot more about the ways in which the collectivist mindset and the cooperative mindset have really sustained black communities and black economies right over time. Um, I've been reading a lot of, of Alice Walker and she talks about in her book, um, in search of our mother's gardens about the way in which it was a life or death proposition, right. For black communities coming out of the aftermath of slavery, where it wasn't a matter of saying we had the right to refuse service or refuse support for our fellow community members that it was literally a matter of life or death for everyone and so we were all in that together so you took what you had and you brought it to the table and said well if i don't have everything that i need i have this right how can we find a way forward right and that's really been the the, the basis of the cooperative mindset and then from that that series or that conversation of collectivist thought and cooperative economics and the way that we've been able to support Atlanta's really been able to generate the the black middle class, right? That has been very unique to Atlanta versus other cities. Uh, we know that in Maynard Jackson's first campaign that he was buoyed by black entrepreneurs, right? Who completely financed his entire campaign on his way to becoming the first black mayor of a Southern city, right? And only, I believe, the second black mayor of a U.S. city overall at the time. And so, you know, when thinking about that legacy and that history, right, it really sets the conditions for Atlanta to be a place where, this is a conversation that's kind of ingrained in our blood, right? But even with that, there's still a need for us to continually be um, intentional about the way that we approach the conversations and the way that we show up in our economy as well. 
That's awesome. And and you mentioned reading Alice Walker, and I know in the planting session you you talked about rereading. Um, Where do we go from here? Chaos or Community by Dr. Yeah, King. Yeah. I know you're an avid reader, um, and and a student of just I think of of, of life in general, of philosophy, of of economics, of opportunity, of of everything we're trying to unpack here. What um, can you tell our listeners about how your lived experiences have fueled your personal purpose and, and the work you do with PSE? Yeah, for sure. I, I, and yo, everyone asked me the question off the time, how did I get into this work? And I have to tell them to be truthfully honest that I was just blessed to be at the right place at the right time, right? That there were some conditions that were set and I was just fortunate to walk into them. And um, I was a very inquisitive child. You know, I'm born in Atlanta. Um, I've always lived in this environment, but even within this context, right, I would always notice, you know, that there were distinct differences between communities. Um, I remember always asking my parents the question, why? Like, I was that kid who always wanted to know, why is this like this and why is it not like that? And I was always deeply concerned with the concept of fairness. And a lot of that probably had to do with me being a middle child, right? You know, being the only boy, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like you kind of have to deal with this kind of thought about what's fair and what's not fair oftentimes. But even within that, right, that, you know, I would go to my friends' houses in certain parts of the city and their communities would look different, right, than mine. I would go to different schools or different environments, right, and they were having different conversations. Um, and, you know, I grew up in an all-black community. I went to Martin Luther King High School, right, you know, and so, like I said, this kind of concept of legacy and history was something that was always deeply entrenched in me. Uh, my family were all AUC grads, Atlanta University Center, so I was around this environment my entire life. But I still didn't understand how you can have prestigious institutions um, led by black people, right, or communities that were majority black in some contexts that were um, looking completely different than majority communities or majority white communities, et cetera. And so always trying to figure this question out. And so that led me down this kind of path of exploration. Um, I did go to undergrad in South Carolina at Furman University, uh, where it's the first time in my life where I really encountered race and class-based relationships and saw how other people saw me in the context of this broader world, right? That you, you grew up in an all-black community. Um, it was a little bit insulated, right, in a way that I didn't know what we didn't have because I was growing up around other people who lived like I did, right? And so in the context of even the way in which people get socialized, right, I remember getting to my, you know, to college courses and with teachers and professors, and they would start talking about books that I had never heard of or read, Right. And they would do it in a casual sense as though this is something that you're supposed to know. Or I remember one teacher specifically said, hey, like this is something everybody should have learned. Right. And I didn't learn that. Right. And so you start seeing the ways in which inequities start cropping up in your educational experience. And you know, I had to put work twice as hard in school to catch up around all the stuff that I didn't know. Or even in the social context, conversations about things that everybody else knew of and enjoyed that I had never engaged in or never you know, had the pleasure of being a part of, right? And so when you start navigating the social context with the, the way in which community design occurs and the inequities at the core, you start to create an outcome or a lived experience that in a lot of ways can derail a young person of color, right? And it's a world and an economy. And so, you know, ultimately for me, like I got through that process, I understood, you know, got into the sociology field, again, asking this question of why, why is this different, right? How can I understand this a little bit more? Um, long story short, that took me down into social work. I did some social work for a while, which is really the basis of my practice in economic development and economic inclusion. Um, I did education for a while. 
Um, and I really started to understand that a lot of these issues facing communities um, and the ways in which these inequities manifest are economic issues, right? Which is why I say, hey, I wanna do economic development. I wanna build sustainable and economically independent communities. Um, and then long story short, after the night I graduated with my master's degree, I met a young lady by chance with a friend of mine. She was a friend of a friend. I don't even know her that well. Um, having conversations similar to this, just like about life and the world. And she said, you know, I, I think you'd be really great for this work that we do. Send me over your resume and, you know, I'll like see if this is something that might be a fit for you. Turns out I ended up going through the hiring process, got hired for that position, um, worked with this uh, firm. It was a law and public policy firm where I was doing research and consulting um, across the country, right, for different institutions, governments, et cetera. Um, and that was my role immediately preceding my time getting to the Partnership for Southern Equity. And so when I say literally I was at the right place at the right time, like it was just a matter of being diligent and walking that path and, um, you know, being honoring to the point where people ask the questions and following up with stuff and seeing where the role leads you. That's what uh, I know you said you were kind of like lucky, blessed, whatever to, to stumble into that. But I also am a firm believer that luck is when opportunity meets hard work and preparation. Right. Right. So being there. And then you think about all those lived experiences you had of, of even professionally of, of social work and education and, and the, the, the insights those provided you, the, 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 whatever the necessities of, of learning those skills and learning and coming in with those different lenses. I think it's, it's, a, I always love hearing stories like that where it's like you were supposed to do this. You just didn't know you were supposed to do it. Right. And, and it's crazy to think about too. If I had been asked whether I wanted to do this job 10 years ago or when I was in school, right. It, this job didn't even exist then. Right. Like there were conversations and I appreciate, like I said, with the Partnership for Southern Equity and the work that Nathaniel Smith and, and his team has built in his vision. You know, he was championing this conversation on racial equity before anybody else was talking about racial equity. Right. And so he was really seeding the ground for an opportunity like this for me to step into back then. You know, but I could not communicate that. And if I went and told a career advisor, like, hey, I want to do a, be a researcher in policy uh, consultant around racial economic disparities, they would have been like, what are you talking about? Right. And so uh, definitely got to give honor to the fact that there was a lot of work that was going into this space um, to create this opportunity for me as well. Well, and you touched on something there too, where the opportunity to, you know, I think for so long we've, we've focused on like band-aid solutions of like, mm -hmm. how do we, how do we, you know, like, underperforming schools, all these, but if you think like upstream about where all of these different variables inevitably lead, um, you know, what you said struck a chord with me just in, in the sense that with economic development and a focus on education and social work, like all these things feed into a more equitable future for everybody, you know, like B Corp, I always say capitalism works for everyone and for the long term, but the mm -hmm. opportunity through really education, economic development to solve a lot of the hunger, homelessness, poverty, all these like long standing problems we've had in our country. What, what has been, I guess, what, what has been more challenging than you thought when you got into this work and what has been more rewarding, I guess, from a progress perspective to have seen? Yeah. Um, that's a complicated question. And I have like, several different thoughts. Um, the first is, and I love our elected officials, but working with our elected officials, has been a challenge. And I don't say that in the degree at which, of course, we know that our just political environment in general has become much more polarizing over time. 
Um, but the sense in that we have to understand as constituents and as people, right, whether that be as social uh, social experts and subject matter experts, you know, of our lived experiences, et cetera, that no one person holds a monopoly on knowledge, right? And so when we elect people in these positions, we do so with the expectation that they're going to represent us and our interests and that they understand fundamentally all the different needs that go into these conversations. Um, and unfortunately, the reality is that they're people, right, who have their expertise in very specific things and that they don't always have that expertise that can translate into all of the other areas that we ask them to to represent. Right. As far as from the community side, as a leader, as an elected official. And I give the example of, you know, economic development. We know is full of a lot of very complex technical tools that can really shape, reshape or accelerate problems and exasperate disparities in communities. Right. And if you are, as an elected official, not aware of the potential harm that can be done by the use of a certain tool in a certain environment, right? For example, you know, we're doing some research around tax incentives and property tax incentives to drive private economic development. Um, that has some utility in some context and then in, in some other ways, right? It's a driver of displacement through the history and understanding of kind of the technical nuance of how it gets done. And so if we put a tool like that in the hands of somebody who doesn't fully understand how to use it it can do more harm than it can do intended good, right? And so I will say that's the first thing. It's just being able to work with our elected officials and help them to understand and have all the, the resources and knowledge at their disposal. Um, we talk a lot about civic infrastructure. What are the ways in which when we've got entrepreneurs who are experts in their fields, right, or you know, subject matter experts and researchers in different ways, how is our civic engagement looking beyond just being a part of the voting process? Like, are we serving in different boards and capacities? Are we engaged in conversations in our community to help see that understanding and give that information to our electeds as they're making decisions? Right. That's something I definitely see as being a problem or a challenge. Um, the other and I mentioned this at the outset, right, this idea um, that there is a anti-movement or a counterculture movement to the individualistic nature of economic development and that some people see those things as being contrary to one another and when in reality they're really supplementing each other right that we have to have an idea of uh, collectivism in order to have the fullest expression of what our economy could be um, and so when we deal with a lot of this wrestling in the middle right about what is and what isn't and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate a lot of it, again, is centered on this idea of the, the scarcity mindset. And if I have or if you have, then I can't be again in that same space. The third thing that I think has been more challenging than I think that I anticipated having these conversations. I know this is just part of the work and part of the process is the way in which our communities of color respond to the idea around disparities and what those things mean at different points in time. I was actually having a conversation with a young guy at the barbershop the other day, actually like this past week. Contrary to my haircut, I do actually get barbershops. I go to get haircuts, right? Um, I'm overdue for one, yeah, so yeah. I'm wearing a hat today. <laughs> it's all good. You know, we all go through the moments, right? Um, but he was saying that, you know, with all the advancements that black people are making, he's like, man, we've got to be doing better, right, than we have ever been doing before as a people, right? And that there's this idea that, because we have very prominent examples of black advancement and kind of black exceptionalism that all black people are doing better. And I had to share with them some of the data, right? That, you know, in Atlanta in particular, that a child born into poverty only has a 4% chance to make it out of poverty, 
right? You know, and, and living in these different contexts and communities, right? And understanding the fact that, you know, collective black wealth is on the road to zero, right? The road to zero and net wealth for all black communities as a whole, that home ownership rates right now are stagnant or in some cases lower than they were at the time where the Fair Housing Act was passed or after Dr. King's death. And so when you see all of these different social contexts and the data that says, hey, we're in some ways doing really well, right? We've got more black millionaires than ever before, but we also have these negative determinants that are showing up in, in whether it be in the zip code that you live or the determinants of health or negative externalities around your communities and the way in which historic um, design and development practices have then ostracized and created more issue for black and brown communities, right? At the end of the day, we're still holding this place in history between advancement and, and still a lot of challenge. And that a lot of times people see the very prominent examples of advancement. And we think that the challenges are very individualistic or a function of moral failure or ineptitude or that these individuals just didn't work hard. And we're not tying the two together, even from the black community, right? That we're not thinking about this as being a social context as much as it's an individual failure. Right. And so how do we make sure that even our communities of color are sensitive to the reality that, you know, there are still disparities that we're still seeking to address um, and that they can still be active in helping to create solutions to those challenges as well? Yeah, that it's a journey. Exactly. Um, and we all need to be in it together uh, that, yeah, we, you know, you can always take time to celebrate the wins. And then it's kind of I mean, it's kind of like a football team. You, mm -hmm. you get 24 hours and then to the back next. in the film room. Right back on the practice exactly. field, like keep working. Exactly. And I think the the hard part about that conversation too, is it's really against the backdrop of a broader American conversation around individualism, right? And how does that play itself into our economic practice, right? We know about just the culture of extractive capitalism. And, you know, of course, in the B Corp context, I know you're familiar and you teach and talk about these things that there's a, a role for social utility in the way business gets done. And so when we see individual advancement, right? You know, the problem that we're trying to navigate now is that a lot of people are simply modeling the economic practices of our, our yesteryear, right? That have been centered on extraction and diminished value and return for communities. And so even if you are, for example, a person of color who is, you know, getting into housing redevelopment and you buy up a block of houses, Right. And you try to flip all these properties to make a lot of money like, yeah, that could be, you know, fruitful for you individually. But you could also be still displacing an entire row of homes or block of houses that could have then gone to somebody and maintained their affordable housing. You know, it doesn't feel good for an individual and community to say, I just got gentrified out of my neighborhood. Right. Or a legacy resident to get pushed out of their city. If the person who did it was black versus white. Right. You're still engaging in a harmful economic practice. And so how do we make sure that we understand that even in our pursuit of wealth and wealth equality, right, that we're not subsequently recreating harmful practices for communities of color, whether we be a person of color or not still holding that. Well, that wraps up another edition of Be the Change Georgia. We're grateful, as always, for the opportunity to serve you with this content and grow this incredible community of purpose-driven B Corp leaders. If you haven't already, we would be grateful for you to rate the show wherever you get your podcast by simply tapping the number of stars you think it deserves and sharing it with a friend. This helps us get the word out and continue to use our collective influence as a force for good. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from our production team at Chat with Leaders Media. Learn how you can launch your own podcast to grow your business at chatwithleaders.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening, and now go be a leader worth following.